Okay, stand with me for the reading of the word. We're going to look at today Philippians chapter 2. It's verses 1 through 11. I'm going to read to you first uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be in you, that was also in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you'd open up our hearts and mind, Lord God, today to your word, but also, Lord God, to your spirit, to the spirit of Christ who desires to inhabit us, to lead us, to guide us, to remove, Lord, the selfishness from us and fill us, Lord, with the selfless agape love of the eternal one. I pray, Lord God, that you would work in everybody's heart here today and that you'd be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. Be seated. So, if you look again, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the, the central, the key verse to, really, to Philippians chapter 2. And essentially what it means, the mind, may your thinking, may your interests be the interests of Jesus. What was Jesus interested in? He was interested in glorifying the Father, and he was interested in us. More interested in glorifying the Father, more interested in us than he was in his, uh, himself. So it's a, it's, a, it's a call to agape love, to selfless love. And I'll tell you, that is, I believe, the greatest challenge in life. I don't know about you, but I've found it to be the greatest challenge in my life. The challenge of overcoming self-centeredness, the challenge of overcoming pride, the challenge of overcoming ego, which is essentially the essence and the root of all sin and evil. <laughs> Whatever sin you are struggling with, whatever sins you have been committing, I can guarantee that they all come back to the root of pride, ego, and selfishness. We, we have this natural tendency, right, to be selfish. Humility is a hard thing for us humans. We want to focus on me, right? On I. Me likes to be about me. My needs. My greeds. My comforts. My way. My happiness. We want to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Right? We go through life, you know that song, right? See me. Feel me, touch me. I find humility is like trying to pick up a watermelon pit. Have you ever noticed that? Just when you think you got it, right, it squirts out. And that's kind of been my experience in life. Just when you think you got it. You take people as a whole, I would say, the favorite book 
that people love would be Looking Out for Number One by Robert Ringer, right? It's about looking out for me, looking out for number one. And maybe people's favorite Christian book, hopefully outside of the Bible, in the Christian church, would be this book, Your Best Life Now, by Joel Osteen. You see, it's your best life now. I thought that the next life was where the best life was going to be. But it's all about you. It's all about me. Favorite food. Favorite food of the selfish generation. Burger King. Because you can have it your way. You ever see people who don't get it their way? You ever see grown men and women when they don't get it their way? They will pout. They will sulk like little children, like a little two-year-old child. They will pout and sulk and go into the corner and gripe and moan and complain. Favorite song of the selfish generation. My Way by Frank Sinatra. Being ego-centered, self-centered, pride-centered is just kind of a natural thing that we carry with us in this lower nature. Ego. The, the problem with ego is that, and here's a great acronym, ego, ease God out. Because the, the ego-centered person, the pride-centered person, the self-centered person, I'll tell you something. There is no room for God in their life. And ego, pride, and self-centeredness is a sure way to derail your faith. It'll knock you right off the rails. Bible calls it backsliding. Moving back into the world. Listen to a couple of passages and what God says about humility and pride. James 4, 6. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now that, that word opposes, uh, it's anatiso. It means that God resists the proud. Uh, the person who is, who is centered in ego, the person who is self-centered, the person who is prideful, that person is resisting God. And understand, God will resist them. God will resist them in their life. In fact, God, God will wrestle against that person like he did with prideful Jacob in the book of Exodus. In Psalm 10, verse 4, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Prideful person has, has no room for God in their mind because their mind is filled with, again, self-centered thoughts Ego-centered thoughts, prideful thoughts. There is no room for God. There is no room for his word. There is no room for his son. There is no room for his grace or his mercy or his salvation. He is, he is a man, essentially, who is unreachable. He is unteachable. He is unlearnable. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 5, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. He detests them. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. And all you need to see, uh, to see, sorry Sue, all you need to see, 
tomorrow is our anniversary. We've been married for 41 years. I just can't get my wife, I can't get my wife off my mind. She's put up with me for 41 years. How about that, huh? And she has. Jesus, his conflict was continuously with the prideful. The prideful Sadducees, the prideful scribes, and the prideful Pharisees. He did not have conflict with the humble sinners, as, as bad as sinners as they were. He didn't have a problem with the tax collectors and the prostitutes who came to him humbly. The conflict was with the, the religious self-righteous. Proverbs chapter 8.13, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance. Evil behavior and perverse speech. Why does, God, why does God hate pride and arrogance? Because pride and arrogance is like an impenetrable wall of the human heart that God cannot penetrate through with his grace, his mercy, and his loving spirit. So God here says, I hate pride and arrogance. So again, the, the central theme of Proverbs 2 is humility. And again, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Jesus had an attitude of humility. He had a perfect, pure attitude of humility in everything he said, in everything he did, in everything he prayed, and ultimately in him laying down his life on the cross. Now, when you, you take Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I want to show you this. There are a number of blessings of humility. So the first, the first blessing, if you look at chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ. What does that mean, a consolation? The, the consoling of God to console someone, you console them after a loss. Somebody once wrote, consolation is the dropping of a gentle dew from heaven on desert hearts beneath. The very consoling of God. And you see as you look throughout the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, the Gospels, and you look at Jesus, Jesus consoled the humble. He couldn't console the prideful. He couldn't console the unrepented, the arrogant, the ego-centered. He couldn't console the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. He consoled the humble. He consoled the broken. He consoled those who came to him in humility. Essentially, when we are knocked down and we are humble, God will come and console us and he will lift us up. A great example of that, if you look at when Lazarus died, Jesus went up to Bethany, and there was Martha and Mary who were, who were grieving right, at the death of their brother. And this is a beautiful picture, I think, that depicts the incredible consoling of God that he gave to Martha and Mary. His, his very presence consoled them. His touch consoled them. His word consoled them. And ultimately, his miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead brought consolation to their heart. 
But Jesus is in the consoling business. And when we open up our hearts in humility and the Lord comes and consoles us, it brings joy to us. And then what happens is, as he consoles us, he calls us to console others. When you walk in the love of God, and you really, you really demonstrate that love, you care for people, you pray for them, you carry them in your heart, just walking into their presence, there is an incredible, how many times I have walked into a nursing home, or I've walked into a hospital, or even times walking into a prison, and there's somebody there who is just grieving, and just walking in, the joy that just coming into their presence will bring. In fact, this past week, Lou, up at Holy Name Hospital, I was up to see him a, a, a number of times, and just walking, and Lou would look at me, and, and he would just say, oh, pastor, and he grabbed my hand, and he said, thank you for coming. And I'm, look, I'm not looking for, for, for praise, I'm not looking for glory, but that's just, that's just the love of God. In this, you know, just coming through me, which sometimes is hard to believe, but flowing through me into the heart of this man who was in need of being consoled. And that brings, again, that brings joy. Second thing that the passage says, therefore if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, the word there, comfort, paramuthion, again, of agape, the very comfort of love, a love that soothes the aching soul. It, it comforts the aching soul, it heals the wounded heart, and it mends the broken mind. So you see Jesus and the story of the sinful woman who came breaking into the Pharisee's house, barged through the crowd, looked down upon by the religious leaders, fell at Jesus' feet, wept on them, and then wiped his feet with his hair in incredible humility. And what happened? There came the comfort of agape into her life. This woman who had led a, a rambunctious, sinful life was forgiven. She was forgiven much, so she loved much. You know what's interesting about that woman? She never confessed her sins. She never confessed Jesus as her Lord and Savior. But she is forgiven. Listen to what the, what the Lord said. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Haven't you found that to be true? And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. She never confessed her sins. And she never professed him as her Lord and Savior. But she is forgiven. Why? Because actions speak louder than words. <laughs> actions speak louder than words. It ain't what you say. It's what you do. That flows from the heart. This woman had a broken heart. This woman had a repentive heart. This woman had a believing heart. That Jesus was the Lord and Savior, but she never said it. She demonstrated it by, again, bursting in, falling at his feet, weeping on his feet, and wiping them with her hair. She demonstrated this beautiful heart of humility and faith. 
And she received the comfort of agape. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 through 4, a beautiful passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, um, I'm sorry, chapter um, 1 is all about comfort. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father. And the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. Did you get that? He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. We have been comforted to what? give comfort, we are all called to a ministry of comforting others. If you have the Spirit of God in you, if you are humble, if you are not focused on a self-centered life, you will bring that comfort to others. That is what, again, we have been called to. And that is a, a life of joy. Uh, the next, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, koinonia, pneumatos, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that koinonia, that speaks of, of an intimate relationship, a nearness, a dearness. We all like to spend time with people that we love and enjoy, Right? I don't know about you, I, I don't enjoy spending time with people that I, I, I don't enjoy being with. We, we enjoy being with people, right, that we love and who love us. And when you're in their, their company, it's refreshing. It's, it's renewing. It's, it's, it's koinonia. That, that is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. But let me say, without humility, you cannot have fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You can act like a Christian. You can talk like a Christian. You can come in and out of the church like a Christian. You can even dress like some Christians dress. And you can go through all the gymnastic, the gymnastic worship of Christians, clapping your hands, lifting your hands, sitting, kneeling, I mean, depending what brand you belong to. You can be going through all of that and still not have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit if you have a spirit of, of ego-centeredness and pride, you can look like the church. You can even be called the church. In Revelation chapter 3, the last church of history, which is, I believe, we're in right now. This is it. We are in Laodicea right now. I don't want to be a part of Laodicea. But this is the Laodicean, again, attitude. Because it's one of ego-centeredness and pride and denial. Jesus says, I know your works that you are neither, are, are, are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's the spitball church. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Are they saved? Where is Jesus in relation to this church? 
Revelation 3.20. He's knocking on the door. He's outside the church. He's not inside the church. These people are not saved. The last generation of professing Christians, for the most part, will not be saved. There will be, a, again, there will be a minority, there will be a remnant who will be raptured. I think a lot of these people are the ones who maybe wake up during the tribulation and maybe then are born again when all hell breaks loose on earth, I think, I, I think. But they are, not, they are not saved. They are people, again, they, they're in the church, but the spirit is not in them. What, I mean, just, they just lack humility. They, they just, they, they, they have no brokenness. They have no, I mean, they're fine. You ever see, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm not fine. I'm not. I want to tell you that right now. I'm not fine. I, I battle with the devil every day. I seek to resist, right, the devil every day. But I still have within me a sinful nature that I will not be delivered from until I go home to be with him. And sometimes it shows its ugly head. I know you want a pastor who's perfect, right? That's what people want. Every time I see a pastor who portrays himself as perfect, bang, the crap hits the fan. Everybody sees him for how he is, and everybody in the church is terribly disappointed. One more blessing here. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore... If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. The affectionate, tender mercy of God. You ever experience that, that affectionate, tender mercy of God where it's like literally riveting? You get goosebumps. I'm loved. I'm loved. Mercy. That's God hasn't given me what I deserve. You know what grace is? Grace has given me what I don't deserve. Everything in my life is, is a work of grace. And thank goodness, because if he treated me according to my sin, I'm doomed. But you get literally riveted in that affection and mercy of God that deeply touches your heart. And you, 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 your, your spirit is just saying, I am loved. I am loved by the greatest lover. I am loved by the ultimate lover. I want to see the, the affection and mercy in action in Jesus. The story of, of Jairus' daughter that little girl who died and that mother and father who were heartbroken at their precious little girl who was laying dead. And Jesus went up, cleared the room, kept the three apostles, the inner circle with him. And then he took her by her little hand. And what did he say? Talitho kumi in Aramaic. He says, little lamb, rise. And she rose up, and he gave her life back to her. And then what did he say? Give her something to eat. She's hungry. <laughs> it's, it's just the, the picture of the, the tender mercies of the Lord. And same, same thing here. We've been touched by the, the tender mercy of God. What should we be doing? 
we should be giving it away. Freely you have received, now freely give. Find that person who's hurting. Find them, and they're all around us. They're all, they're, I find them in the church and I find them in the world. They're all around us. And just love them. Right, Nellie? With the tender mercies of the Lord. So the Lord goes on here in verses 2 and 3. So he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And again, just the joy of being like-minded, of, of thinking with that humility of the Lord. Right? It's, about, it's about caring for people, loving people. So watch the last part of the verse is humility in action. Because humility, it has legs and hands and feet. It, 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 it does. It doesn't, it doesn't just yap and talk, right? Talk, talk, talk. In fact, when somebody tells me, oh, I'm really humble, I, I said, but you just, you just lost the game. You just failed the test. You get a big F on the report card. It's demonstrated. It's, it's something that, that you do in action. So watch verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others than himself. Hmm. That's not easy, right? To think that, that people are better than you. I want to say this to you. I want you to watch me closely. I am better. I am better than every one of you in this room. Did you get that? At something. At, at something. I bet I could find one thing that I'm better than you at. Every one of you. And I bet you can find something in your life, every one of you, that you're better than me at. Because there's some things I really stink at. Do you, do you get that? You know what? The, the, see, the, the sickness and the disease of pride is that I'm better than you because. You have any people like that? I'm better than you because I'm prettier than you. Right? Maybe that's true of me today. Here. Not the women, but the men. <laughs> I'm, better, I'm better than you, right? Because I make more money than you. I'm better than you because I drive a nicer car than you drive. I'm better than you because I live in a nicer house than you live. I'm better than you because I have a better job than you have. I'm better than you because, look at this head. It's magnificent. I was a little worried coming in that I, I, my hair was getting wet. Do you, know, do you see people though, you can always find something. And that, that disease, that is a sickness of pride. That I am better than you because of some reason that you pick out, well, essentially the person you're saying to them, that person is probably better than you that in many things. So that, that's really, that's the disease of, of pride. So when, when the Lord here, esteem others better than yourself, the essential meaning here, it's, it's not going around depreciating yourself. It's, it's not going around, right, you know, just, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just terrible. You're better than me. That's not what he's saying. The concept here, each esteem others better than himself. 
Think about others more than you think about yourself. Remember going back to Philippians chapter 1, when Paul prays, he says, I have you in my prayers, have you in my heart, have you in my mind, have you in my emotions. I just want to, I, I don't want to brag this to you, but as I was preparing this message, I was going through my prayer journal, which I pray every day. And I, I, in my prayer journal, I, my adoration time, confession time, thanksgiving time, and then I supplication, lifting up prayers. And I was looking, I was like, wow. On most days, 90 to 95% of my prayers are for others. Sometimes I don't even pray for myself. And just, I pray for others. I mean, I pray always for my family. And then I pray for the church. That the Spirit leads. Sometimes praying specifically for people. Some of you, I pray, I'm praying for you every day. And then, um, give, me, give me like 10 bucks. I'll, I'll get you, I'll pray for you every day. <laughs> I pray for, uh, you know, other people in my life and in the world. But I'm only praying for myself, well, maybe 5 to 10% of the time. I think that's really what the Lord, you're thinking about other people. Not just thinking about myself, right? My, my life. My gratification, you know, that's, it's just, you're putting others out there. You know, there, there's um, a truth. The most miserable people in life are self-centered people. The most miserable people in life are prideful people, ego-centered people. I'll tell you this, it don't matter, it don't matter how healthy they are, how much money they have, where they live, it, it's like, they are, I'm telling you, they are the most miserable people that I have met are self-centered people. Whether, whether poor or rich, they're just always focused on themselves. And they are very unhappy. You know, Carl Menninger is considered the great American psychologist. He was doing this uh, seminar, and one of the people asked him, what is the secret to happiness? And they expected him to go into this great dissertation explaining like all these different mental techniques and certain things that you can be doing to be happy. And what he said was, he said, leave the, leave the building, and then he said, make a left, go down the street, go over the other side of the tracks, find a person in need, and love them. He said, that's the secret. Just forgetting yourself. Forget it, just, you, you lose yourself in, in loving other people. And that brings happiness. I believe that's, again, that's what I believe the Word of God is saying here. Each esteem others better than yourself. Now watch, he says in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Right? We all naturally look out for our own interests, right? I think we, right? and there's nothing wrong with that. Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? Again, this is, it, this is not self-depreciation. We look, you take a bath or shower. You make sure you have, you have hygiene. You eat, right? You, you work to be able to provide for yourself. That's, that's, all, that's okay. That's good. But what he says here, don't just be interested, right, in your stuff. Be interested in other people's stuff. Do you rejoice when somebody wins a victory. When somebody 
achieve success. So you're one of those people like, oh man, I don't believe right, right? Do you weep with those who are weeping? Do you share their pain in their heart and in their life? I think that's really what it is to to really right be interested in the interests of others. To really have a have a genuine interest in their joy, but also in their pain. I think that that's, again, humility. That's the mind of Christ. Look at the last few verses. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Talks here about his great condescending love who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. He humbled himself before his father in obedience. And he humbled himself to save us. And that's the life we're called to. The Christian life is, is a surrender. If you, if you don't get that, man, you're missing the whole boat. The Christian life, is, it is a surrender and a continuous surrender. I mean, it would be really nice to see the, 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 the one and done people. You ever see one and done? One and done. Oh, yeah, I was, born, I, was born, I was born again 20 years ago and baptized in the Holy Spirit. What has your life been like now? When was the last time you got down on your knees and you surrendered? Your ego, your pride, your self-centeredness and humility to the king. Because I have to do that all the time. Because my way pops up all the time. Is it going to be my way or is it going to be thy way? And I'm in the Garden of Gethsemane frequently praying that prayer. Not my will but yours be done. And I want to tell you that it's not always easy. You say, well, this pastor, he's been, he's been with the Lord 41 years. You know, let me tell you, it's still not easy. Because the flesh is still there. But let me tell you something, just as you see in Jesus, when we humble ourselves, look at the last three verses of Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, which says, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He was exalted. He was glorified. We won't be glorified like he's glorified. But, but what does the scripture say? In James chapter 4 verse 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And he always does. When we, when we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, it's truly amazing what, 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 what happens. We enter into the life of the amazing Christian.
I'm going to read this to you. I've wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it, I think, for 40 years. I want to give um, credit for the inspiration that came from A.W. Tozer. The amazing Christian, he goes, he goes up by going down. And when he thinks he's up, he's likely down. He's richest when poorest and poorest when richest. To go high, he goes low. And when he's low, he's actually high. He's, almost, he's most sinful when least conscious of his sin and most sinless when most conscious of his sin. To go up, he goes to his knees. He is biggest when serving others and littlest when serving himself. He is wisest when he knows that there's so much more to know and dumbest when he thinks he knows it all. He is weakest when he thinks he is strong and strongest when he knows that he is weak. Sometimes he accomplishes most by being still and accomplishes very little by being busy. He fears God and yet is not afraid of him. When he deeply fears God, he fears nothing or no one else. He is joyful in sorrow, peaceful in a world of chaos, powerful when looking powerless. He knows that he has been cleansed from his sin, yet is still very aware that he carries within himself his sinful nature. He is dead to himself, yet more alive than he's ever been, with eternal life beating in his chest. In God's presence, he's filled with the awe, shaken in very soul, yet there's no place that he'd rather be. He is saved by the blood of the Lamb now, yet he looks forward to being saved later. He loves one more than anything or anyone, though he's never seen him. He knows Jesus, though he's never met him in the flesh, better than he knows anyone else, even himself. To the world he appears odd, peculiar, even strange. To God, he is his child, his son, his beloved, the apple of his eye. And that is the paradox of the amazing Christian. The amazing Christian lives in humility. Amen? Let's all bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, I just pray over this congregation today, anybody who will be watching, Lord God, in future days, that we would humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord, in the sight of the King, God in the form of man who died for us on the cross and was raised from the dead, that we would humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. For I know, Lord God, for as many as that will do that this day, you will, you will lift them up. Have your way with us, Lord.